This is Discarian Singh Sadhu here with Ask Canadian Six, the podcast, joined uh, by my co-host, Dr. Jaspreet Korbal. How are you doing? I'm good, and welcome back. We did a couple episodes without you. We had Gerpa step in. Um, we're very excited to have you back and doing your thing. Yeah, you know what? Uh, there's there's an argument to be made that Gerpa Kaur is actually better. Um but uh, I bullied my way back into co-hosting this. Uh, no longer she's the executive director, better. but still on the executive committee. Yeah, she's better. She's got her her like ed- proper education in this, and her insights are amazing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Kirpakor, uh, I apologize. I apologize. Uh, but we'll like to have you come on as a guest. How about that? Uh, no, uh, all jokes aside, I'm uh, glad to come back on and co-host this podcast uh, in a monthly installments of kind of what's happening uh, around uh, Canada, but also the world, uh, as far as the Sikh uh, community goes. Uh, this week's episode, uh, or sorry, this month's episode, uh, is going to be uh, jam-packed. There's a lot, a lot happening right now. Um, we'll be covering uh, what's going on uh, in India. There was a recent New Yorker piece, uh, just before, I, I know you read that, pretty okay. chilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we will be talking about the world paying more attention to India. What, that, what does that mean? Um, we'll also be hopping over a related topic on Indian government misinformation. There was a uh, a uh, an investigatory piece uh, that came out from uh, Disinfo uh, EU out in the European Union that uncovered some crazy fake news websites uh, that are being ran by uh, folks in India. Uh, we will then round off with uh, Balpreet Singh, who will be coming on to talk about uh, Bill 21 and what's going on. Lots happening there. There's uh, an appeal. Then uh, this will look like this is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, obviously, what's going on with uh, Manitoba's Premier Pallister uh, taking the fight to Quebec as well. Uh, also, helmet exemption. Uh, and then last but not least, we're going to be having uh, Sonny Hundle here from the UK talking about the elections there. Uh, the BJP uh, interference in the elections over the Kashmir issue, uh, and then also his experience in the Indian media. He used to be a writer for uh, the Hindustan Times, especially in light of the Rana Ayub profile in the New Yorker. Uh, so after the jump, we'll be hopping right into it. Blood and soil in Narendra Modi's India. The New Yorker's piece that came out on December 2nd has rocked um, Rock the world. It's it's gone uh, everywhere. It's been shared by folks of uh, very high profile, uh, by regular people. It's made the rounds on WhatsApp and social media. And this whole coverage on the Prime Minister's Hindu nationalist government and its relationship and animosity and adversarial engagement with the 200 million Muslims of India as almost internal enemies is the thesis and what's covered in this New Yorker piece. And it's interesting because it's something we've talked about quite a bit on this show over the last mm-hmm. um, you know, couple of months. It's something that the WSO has talked about for years is this rise of the Hinduatta, Hindu nationalist government, this concept of the Hindu Rashtra that a country for Hindus and this stripping of uh, India and its this notion, or at least a self-ideal, of a pluralistic, secular democracy. And we know as Sikhs that 
that's not uh, always true. Uh, and in 1984, uh, when we experienced genocide at the hand of the Congress government, uh, we saw up close and personal that India is not always uh, a place where minorities will succeed uh, in light of the majority uh, of, of that country. But we're seeing an, a new exposure here uh, that's kind of unparalleled, uh, just before. I, I, I wonder, did you get a chance to read this article and, and kind of what were your initial thoughts? I did. I got a chance to read it. I, When I initially sat down to read it, I was really um, overwhelmed by the length of it because I'm used to reading quotes on Instagram and this was a little bit longer than that. Um, so if you do get a chance to, I mean, you can just Google the New Yorker blood and soil in Narendra Modi's India or DM one of us or the WSO will send you the link. Uh, I missed this, but right at the top, there is an audio link and you can just play it and listen to it. And it's an hour and 34 minutes, the full audio link. Um, so there's that. But I, once I started reading it, I, I read it top to bottom, word for word. And I am a skimmer and I didn't skim. Um, and I was enthralled and I felt validated. Uh, if you are like me and you find Indian politics overwhelming and you can't understand the anatomy of them, this is for you. It breaks it down in a way that's really easy to understand. And I think that is one of my personal challenges um, or the things one of the things I find really difficult is when other people don't understand Hindu nationalism as, nationalism as a threat. We can understand white supremacy as being um, a really big thing and a really threatening thing. Uh, when we look at racialized folks, I think it's really hard to understand racialized folks as violent oppressors in the same way. This really breaks down the ideology and all of that. So I felt like extremely validated because here's something I knew and someone had actually broken it down in a really um, di digestible way. And the second thing was I felt a lot of empathy. Like when I, they describe uh, Modi's, role in Gujarat and what happened to the Muslims there. And I just kept seeing the pogroms in Delhi in 1984. And so there's a lot of, um, I know that, I understand that, I understand what that feels like for a community. And um, yeah, so just a lot of learning. Um, if you're a skimmer, skim it, add it to your list. Um, you can see that the they know what they're doing and they're not actually that ashamed of it and they don't actually hide it. They're very open about what they're doing. And if you don't have time, right. you can actually listen to it. Yeah, I think there was a conversation happening online uh, from uh, one media personality in India where that was like, oh, look, this is just look at all these distractions to the economy. Like we should be talking about the economy. And I think what this article does well and a lot of the conversation that has stemmed out of it is, no, like, this is not some distraction. So to put, pull wool over people's eyes from looking at what's going on with the economy, this is actually the whole point. This has been a, uh, a long mission of the RSS. And I think if there's one really interesting aspect of this article is that it's it's exposed to folks who may not have been as familiar with the topic and what's happening in India to the RSS. It's, it exposes folks to the Hindu nationalist movement. It exposes to uh, Modi's uh, integral role in that, especially in the modern iteration of the RSS. And I think there's some the other aspect to this. So I was going to say the other aspect to this, I think that's that's really um, uh, eye opening for folks, I think, who otherwise wouldn't have uh, known or understood this uh, in, in receiving this information for something as credible as The New Yorker. Uh, is uh, this discussion of how 
the free media or the free press in India is totally compromised and it's mm -hmm. been totally undermined aside from a few outlier players now that exists more of like an independent space the mainstream large media conglomerates in India are are undermined considerably and have become more or less mouthpieces of the government through coercion and the other the other really uh, uh, neat thing about the New Yorker article was that how it introduced to the world uh, Rana Ayub, who is a investigative uh, journalist in India who's been really taking it to the Modi government. And while it feels like she's kind of an overnight sensation because of this article, uh, there is tons of work, uh, tons of blood, sweat and tears that she put into this, uh, exposing the Gujarat uh, massacres, uh, ex exposing the RSS and they're in the Modi's government over time um, and the, the beating she's taking internally in India, but continue to push forward on this uh, is, is such a story of bravery and, and courage uh, that you can't help but be very inspired. Uh, and then also appreciate the privilege that we have in being in Canada to openly speak about this stuff uh, and really actually enjoy the free speech uh, to challenge some of these ideas and concepts that are happening in India right now. Uh, and it's really important to us, and I think it's really important to Canadians to understand, uh, I, of course, because of what happened during the India trip with Trudeau and, and the impacts of that still continue to linger you know, with things like the India-Canada security framework, which puts at risk activists uh, from the Sikh community, Muslim communities, and otherwise. But uh, India has a, an ongoing interest, uh, an international uh, agenda that will continue to come up against our interest here in Canada, our Sikhs and diaspora. And we're going to be touching a bit more on this uh, over the show and other topics. Uh, and we also have um, to understand that the Conservative Party of Canada um, and uh, other political parties in this country. But, you know, let's focus in a little bit here on the Conservatives. You know, when Stephen Harper stood up on a stage, uh, you know, right before the election saying, you know, we stand shoulder to shoulder essentially with the Modi government. Uh, when folks in the Conservatives government say, you know, we share the values of the Modi government or we're aligned with the Modi government, Justin Trudeau's undermining this relationship. This is finally a piece of uh, precedent uh, a piece of evidence that we can then present uh, and show uh, these politicians that either you uh, do not understand what the Modi government actually is and you are misinformed and operating on a uh, misrepresentation of fact that the government in India is the same type of democratic and pluralistic society that we enjoy here in Canada because it is not. It is definitely not under mm -hmm. Modi. And to be fair, it's definitely not really under the Congress government either who have been hell-bent at undermining the Sikh community as well. So for me, this this has a really great um, uh, implications for how this country opens its eyes and engages with what's really happening on the ground in India. Yeah, um, a couple things. I want to second, um, Rana Ayub is a baller. Read this article. Look at what she did. Um, her story, like she faked being an American documentary filmmaker to get really close to um, the BJP. And she got all of them to like admit things openly. And she wrote a hap like she just haphazardly threw together a book that has all of um, her stuff in it. Um, she's amazing. And what she's doing is... Um, it, it is definitely costing her and she won't give up this fight. Um, and yeah, I also want to second that the um, Canadian government is 
there are moments where they don't stand up to genocide and you have to ask why. Um, there isn't an overt response to the genocide of Uyghur Muslims in China right now. There, I mean, I would be surprised if there was something otherwise, but there won't be a response to um, the genocide, like in real life in this moment, building up to the genocide of Muslims in India. Um, and it's because of how much power these countries have. And we saw that through Stephen Harper overtly. And I think we see it a little bit more, more covertly um, through Justin Trudeau. I mean, we arrested one Huawei executive and are still suffering the backlash of that. Um, and I did want to share uh, because there's one part of this article that really stood out for me. Um, they they cite as someone who had interviewed Modi for hours, and this was before he, so you actually get to see how he becomes the person he is today, the person that refuses to do interviews and give himself up to the public in that way and answer questions. But he did give this interview when he was younger. And <clears throat> this one um, interviewer said he interviewed Modi for several hours and came away shaken. Um, he says that Modi exhibited all the traits of an authoritarian personality, puritanical rigidity, a constructed emotional life, fear of his own passions, and an enormous ego that protected a gnawing insecurity. During the interview, Modi elaborated a fantastical theory of how India was the target of global conspiracy in which every Muslim in the country was likely complicit. Modi was a fascist in every sense. The interviewer says, I don't mean this as a term of abuse. It's a diagnostic category. Yeah, and I think the other thing to really consider here is, um, we'll, we'll, I'll end with this on, on, on this topic at least, is this is all happening in the backdrop of um, in the increasing uh, moves by the Hindu nationalist movement and this Hindu nationalist government uh, to flex its muscles against minorities, in particular the Muslim community right now. And, and just kind of a side note, uh, by uh, no means... Uh, should Sikhs just be comfortable and say, well, you know, this is this is just anti-Muslim uh, discrimination. It doesn't take much of a leap before it becomes anti-Sikh or mm -hmm. other anti-minorities. Uh, and and also side point on top of that is as Sikhs, it doesn't matter if it comes and hits us as well. We always stand uh, in defense yes. of uh, minorities or those that are facing tyranny. But the, the backdrop to all of this, and I, I think why there's greater exposure to what's happening in India is Modi has really taken this new mandate, this new five-year term majority that he has to really flex muscle and really implement uh, the long-term goals and agenda of the RSS. Uh, and that includes Kashmir and stripping of its special right under the constitution and essentially making it into an open-air prison, uh, which it continues to operate as with the internet closed off and like a full-out military uh, enforcement there. Yeah, but it's also happening on the backdrop of the recent uh, the citizen uh, citizenship amendment act uh, and the national register of citizens so these two pieces of uh, uh, of law or uh, legislation in india right now uh, essentially to, long story short um, is granting citizenship to hindu Sikhs, buddhists jains and christians who are fleeing religious persecution from neighboring countries uh, but it explicitly excludes muslims and this is the first time um, at least to my understanding, where India has established a, a law that particularly excludes a religion. Um, however, once again, India has a long history of, of treating its minorities poorly, uh, but this is this is even um, more uh, telling than than what has happened in the past, especially underneath the BJP government. Uh, and this happens in conjunction with the National Register of Citizens, uh, which is 
aims to register all citizens of India in a, in a national registry. And, and it requires every person to prove that they have a right to be in India using dem, dem, uh, like documentary evidence. And this is particularly aimed at um, folks on the uh, eastern end of India who have fled uh, Myanmar or uh, as the Rohingya Muslims or uh, other uh, Muslims that face persecution elsewhere uh, to essentially strip them of their citizenship uh, and put them into detention camps that are being built right now. And there's satellite imagery and, and other imagery from the ground that show full out, like essentially they, they look like concentration camps. They look like detention centers uh, where they're going to be stuffing upwards of 2 million people that are going to be stripped of their citizen citizenship. Like this is this is what all this new exposure to uh, the Hindu Vata and the Hindu nationalist government of the Modi gov- the Modi is being exposed um, over, uh, and it's it's really telling how uh, hard and fast uh, this Modi government is trying to start flexing its muscle and and implementing this Hindu nationalist agenda, uh, and it's something that should be of a lot of concern for Canadians, a concern for Canadians officials, uh, and and a telling sign of. Uh, when when we talk about grievances from the Sikh Canadian communities or other minority communities in this country, it's it's about stuff like this that we're talking about. Yeah, and that whole having documentation, um, I mean, it's not a stretch to understand why that's such an easy way to target people. I think most of us, if we're children of immigrants, our parents have two birthdays. Documentation is not a thing um, on the ground in rural areas. And people don't, uh, p- things get washed away in floods when you're fleeing, especially um, those things are not those are privileges that folks in those situations don't have. Um, it's also been very telling the response, um, the resistance to this act has come a lot uh, from students and from young people, which is not surprising. They're always the moral compass of activism. Um, and there has been police brutality in response to the student movements. Um, the Sikh response, and especially the Sikh response in the diaspora, has been very telling as well. Um, and I want to reiterate this. You already said this, but Sikhs have historically never stood back when other minorities were targeted. Everything from the precedent that Guru Tegh Bahadur Ji Maharaj set for us, and then we also see it in the fight for independence from the British. Um, we see it in uh, during emergency we see it during the Punjabi Suba movement. Um, the, the six don't stand back. It doesn't have to be about us. Um, and you also said, and I want to re- reiterate this again, because it's happening to um, Muslims doesn't mean it's not happening to us. So we overtly, in terms of overt violence, we fare better under the BJP, but they have plans for us. And their narrative with Sikhs is that we are Hindus. And so the violence against us under them looks more like, oh, you know, it's we're just all the same and we'll incorporate, you'll speak Hindi and you'll become Hindus and we'll incorporate you into us. Um, and that that has very far reach. Like that's people I know that will say those things to us. There are groups of Sikhs that have uh, very much uh, mixed Hindu and Sikh ideology and preach that as we're all the same thing. Um, and so if it's not... Uh, we're not safe because one form of violence is overt and one form of violence is covert. And empathy should not be a prerequisite for action. Even if you do not understand, we do understand what the Muslim community is going through. But even if for some reason we didn't, and even if for some reason the attack 
wasn't going to extend to us. There is nothing about who we are that um, gives us the right to sit back and watch this happen. That is, it feels very disempowering to be in the diaspora and to watch this happen and say, what can Canadian six do? But there are, there are moments where there are some obvious connections about like how we endorse politicians in the West and how we let Islamophobia in the West inform our political decisions. And that um, the ethno-nationalism, the fear around immigrants and refugees, the Islamophobia, that's something that seems to have gripped the entire globe. And we can fight from here. Breaking news from EU Disinfo Lab. And I quote from a tweet that they put out on November 13th. We uncovered a worldwide network of 265 fake media outlets in 65 countries targeting the U.S., Canada, Brussels, Geneva, and many more, which all serve Indian lobbying interest thread. This this was actually pretty huge because for a long time, folks uh, uh, like us at the World Sick Organization, as well as others, have been talking about the Indian government interfering in the affairs of foreign countries, uh, and in this case, Canada, especially targeting Sikh communities in the diaspora. And now we actually had a verified third-party report that suggested this is true. Now, during the election, there was a lot of conversation about this, the, the Canadian election, mind you, not the UK. We'll talk about that one later. But there was a lot of conversation in the Canadian election about foreign interference from China and India, uh, including commentary from folks in the security agencies or from the security world uh, on mainstream media here in Canada. And Canada did a really great job through the advocacy of organizations like WSO to proactively fight, stop, and not report from these type of sites. But again, it was crazy seeing the stuff from the EU disinfo lab and here are some of the fake sites operating in Canada that would push Indian lobbying agendas. The Jewish Tribune, the Toronto Telegram, the Times of New Brunswick, Canadian Illustrated News, Quebec Telegraph, the Acadian Recorder, Times of Manitoba, and the 24-hour magazine in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Montreal. For those of you that are Canadian, some of these names actually sound familiar because they're old uh, media outlets that no longer really operate that the these Indian actors took over for those that are outside Canada they hit probably your country as well especially if they're UK and the US just record when you look at this and you look at the map uh, that DSFLF kind of built out this interactive map on their website it's kind of insane how much effort went into this and what is also kind of a hilarious is Tarek Fattah is quoted in a lot of this uh, yeah. because supposedly he wrote for some of these sites. Like it, it's just way too convenient this whole uh, nexus because it makes so much sense and it confirms so much of what we already thought. Yeah, and Tarek was uh, also friends with one of the per people who had like who was closely linked to the purchasing of these domains. It's just, I mean, my horror and my uh, pain aside, it's just brilliant um, to come into a country to purchase domains that are credible or sound credible. So they were like adjacent to something like the Toronto Telegram or the Times of New Brunswick. You're going to look at that and be like, oh, yeah, that's a source um, to see that and to, to create news there. 
Um, and then once things go viral, like half of those stories that our parents send us on WhatsApp or the videos they send us don't actually have a source. It's, um, this is like the less overt violence, right? This is where, um, if you think about like capillaries instead of veins, these are like the uh, ones that have more reach. They might not be as deep, but they help form our thoughts in a way that we're like, oh yeah, I guess this must be news or this must be true. Also, there was a study that came out um, this month that said that Canadians um, cannot, most Canadians um, cannot tell truth from opinion in a written passage with implicit clues. Uh, so that means if um, you are trained um, through education, formal education or through something else to know that like if something, if uh, you see a source is cited, um, you go and check that source and you see if that source is true. There was a clue in that written passage that that's a fact and not an opinion. Um, another implicit clue would be someone saying, I think. Um, so I would know with that clue in the passage that this is opinion and not fact. Most Canadians can't look at a written passage and tell truth from opinion. So it even if these things get caught and even if they this thing has now been exposed, the damage is done. And it's really easy to do that damage if we can look at a story that's gone viral from something called the Times of Manitoba. And it looks like it's uh, fact checked and it looks like it's gone through a proper editor. It's It's kind of a brilliant move. Yeah, and a lot of this comes um, in, a, in a larger theme around uh, Indian interference and uh, foreign affairs. And there was another story that broke uh, in in the same light, uh, a little bit more nefarious though. Uh, and the BBC wrote about it, and it was it was about a German court sentencing a uh, Indian couple for spying on Kashmiri and Sikh groups. Um, and again, spying on minority communities in India. And one similarity between the Kashmiris and Sikhs is that Punjab and Kashmir are the two states in India where the majority is not Hindu. Like in Punjab, it's Sikhs and Kashmir, it's obviously Muslim. They're the only states in India that are like that. But a German court sentenced uh, the, these couples for um, admitting to spying on the Kashmiri Sikh groups for the Indian Foreign Intelligence Service or RAW. Um, and the court document said that the the couple, uh, and they're up in there, they're six. They're, they're Manmohan Singh and his wife, mm -hmm. uh, Kanwaljit uh, Kaur, were paid more than uh, seven 7,000 euros for passing on the information. Uh, and they've been doing this since 2015. And it, how heartbreaking is that, right? Like, I, when I saw yeah. this article, I was so pissed off because, A, obviously, spying and espionage and undermining communities in the diaspora is nothing new with this government and there's ample evidence and, and examples out there and for a fact this is still happening and it's still happening in this country it's still happening elsewhere and it's like the worst kept secrets in a lot of our communities mm -hmm. about well so-and-so is probably uh, a spy or so-and-so is probably collecting information and feeding it to the intelligence service of india uh, and it's happening in our own backyards but it really breaks my heart when you see like it's it's up and it's our own people that yeah. are like uh, spying and undermining our own community and for what seven thousand euros like let's be real yeah uh, I mean I it's, think that, it's frustrating because it is happening yeah same I saw that and I was like first of all what's your, what's your going rate <laughs> seven thousand euros is not enough to sell yourself out and it also um, sometimes it can sound, you sound like a conspiracy theorist to say, um, there's Indian spies in Canada, there's agents in Canada. And again, the validation that comes from moments like this, where you're like, it is happening. Someone got caught. 
Um, it does remind folks that this is a real thing. Um, they're they're very much open secrets. Um, I think we know in Toronto um, how the Indian consulate has been used and is used to do the work of the Indian government um, without much consequence. And also that when uh, in in my experience, the people that do this work can range from um, people who are so uh, have such an attitude of serving India that they pretend to be sick, like they will commit their a part of their life to being fake sick to um, observe the community and send information back. But there's also a second category, which is folks who are sick. And uh, there's a little bit of internalized oppression and self-hate enough to the point that you're conscripted to do the work of the Indian government. And I think these folks were that latter category. And it really does something to for you to see that, oh, I guess this person who has a bug or this BB that looks like my auntie isn't really doing that work. And it just requires having your guards a little bit up, not being as open about the information that you might have and really, and these folks do build relationships in the community. That is how this form of intelligence works. So it is like a slower process and they do come in and they they build people's trust. It's not like um, they're spying on you through your camera on your computer. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because this was, um, there was a story that came out, uh, I think it was like Times of India or something about how the police um, broke up a, a nexus of like sick um, extremist, like terrorist activity that was going to happen. And one of the persons that they arrested, who was like a ringleader, actually turned out to be a spy of theirs that, that was being used in <laughs> Europe, uh, in Germany. Uh, like these guys who, who were actually their spies uh, and were, were state actors. Uh, and, and embarrass the police because they're like, oh, oh, actually, yeah, never mind. So it, it kind of, it, like, again, it validates a lot of this stuff that um, I think the community has uh, raised alarms over for for a long time. Uh, and I, I think it's something uh, here locally in Canada that you know it's raised over and over again. And you know, some folks in government roll their eyes, and some take it much more seriously. And I think post India trip, it's taken much more seriously now. Um, but this kind of really leads us into uh, this new government that we have. It's a minority government. It's still a liberal government, though. It's still Justin Trudeau and his team. Um, and they, they're starting to build out their cabinet committees and uh, hiring up their staff. And they're going through this whole process right now, getting the government up and running uh, so, so that it's hitting the ground running in, in the new year. And one of the things that they build up are cabinet committees, which are committees that will help push the agenda of the government. Um, and they're led usually by members of uh, the ministry or of a cabinet. Uh, and one of the committees is actually on uh, global affairs and public security. And this committee considers issues concerning Canada's engagement with uh, and like participation in the international community, uh, including trade promotion and diversification, but it's also responsible for issues related to domestic and global security. Um, and this is this is really important committee for uh, six because uh, again, it was Public Safety Canada, the ministry, which uh, put out the terror report, right? That maligned the sick mm -hmm. community. Um, it's it's a lot of engagement with um, you know the Indian state or foreign relations that often circle back and undermine or malign our community in, in really unfair ways. Uh, so there's there's a real importance to this committee and in, in ensuring that you know, what kind of tone or language this government takes on issues of global security domestically and internationally. Uh, and it's chaired by uh, none other, uh, the Honorable Navdeep Singh Bats, um, which is really interesting uh, because now you have a Sikh 
chairing this committee, does that mean anything different? Like, will this mm-hmm. actually translate into hopefully a government that will not uh, undermine or malign the Sikh community? And if you look at the four years previously of a majority uh, liberal government, there are ample uh, examples of where the Sikh community was maligned. Um, so is this a, a, a notion of, okay, we're going to try a little harder this time to ensure we're more appreciative of not just the Sikh community, but other minority communities in this country who face external pressure from other countries, whether that's India or whether that's China or Iran or any other place. Um, but the members also include um, amongst many, like you know, a handful, like 10 or so uh, cabinet members, it includes Harjit Singh Sajjan, um, and it also includes uh, a new uh, member of parliament, Anita. Not that she's not Sikh, uh, she's of a Hindu background, but uh, obviously someone of uh, connections of uh, Indian heritage. So you have folks in this committee, and what does this, what would this actually mean for the community when it comes to topics like security and, and international affairs? Yeah, um, so Anita has been a professor of law at U of T. Um, she was born in Nova Scotia, and she has a, um, ties and influence with the Indo-Canadian community. And she was also uh, the chairperson of the Museum of Hindu Civilization. Um, so what are the, I mean, there are questions that are worth asking here. What is her in, uh, her role, her relationship, her interest in the Indo-Canadian community. Um, I'm personally going to check out what what the Museum of Hindu Civilization is, given the current discourse of uh, Hinduism. Um, she is very proudly toted as being this, um, the, like hin- the way that we are proud of Sikhs who are in government. She's the uh, folks that are Hindu are proud of her for being in government. Um, and then her role on this committee, alongside Nithi um, Bans and Harjit Sajjan as well, it's um, I think it's valuable to keep eyes on this and to ask questions. We do know um, that the Sikhs that we have when they go to government do advocacy for the Sikh community that we are not privy to. Um, so they're probably voices at the table and they're probably resisting things internally that we'll never know what their contribution is. And then publicly they'll toe the party line. Um, And the hope was always that um, part of what would happen was that they would uh, defend Sikhs. What we do know is that uh, whatever their resistance was or whatever their voice was at the table, um, what did get through was that Sikhs were called terrorists on the safety report. And so um, I think it's fair to be critical of having our community thrown under the bus like that. I think it's fair to ask questions about what their representation means as six on these matters. And I am interested to know where, what, how this unfolds yeah. in this minority government in these years. And I'm confident that the WSO will be there to defend uh, sick interests in Canada every time. So if we somehow end up back on that list without a shred of evidence, the way we did last time, um, we have our panels ready to assemble <laughs> and all of our democratic tools yeah. ready to go, our strongly worded well, op-eds. And, yeah. Yeah, well, I was, I was just going to say, look, I, I, there's no issues of being proud of your, whether you're the Muslim community, the Hindu community, or the Sikh community. I, I think you have every right to be proud of your heritage and and. Uh, and, and and, and supportive of community initiatives. Uh, I think if there's one issue of one uh, item of concern with Anita Nanda, and, and this was covered in the Georgia Strait um, by Gurpreet Singh, uh, was you know, she is in a, an advisory member with the Canada India Foundation. 
And mm-hmm. um, look, I don't know Anita. I have never engaged with her before. I have, I have no understanding or appreciation of where she stands on things like Hinduatta or the Modi government. Um, but the Canada India Foundation has in the past, um, uh, for example, denounced the it denounced the genocide motion um, that uh, that was passed here at Queen's Park in Ontario uh, by then Harinder Mali and was championed by guys like Jagmeet Singh. Uh, you know, the Canada India Foundation actually campaigned on getting that cancelled and removed that motion. Um, back in the day, the Canada India Foundation, for example, uh, was uh, supportive of uh, Gujarati politicians who were being banned, uh, the visas being banned or, or blocked or facing um, scrutiny because of their role in uh, the anti-Muslim massacres that took place uh, back in, I think, 2002. So the Canada India Foundation has this history of taking very pro-India, uh, anti-minority positions. Uh, and what does that um, actually entail uh, aside from the role that this organization plays in pro-India advocacy or pro-India government advocacy uh, in Canada? So Anita Nanda was an, an advisory member. Uh, I think she's still up on their website as an advisory member. Uh, you know, and I, I'm interested to learn more about what her role uh, in the organization is. You know, how long has she been there? Uh, what her input has been on uh, issues of importance to minority communities here and, and human rights advocacy in India, uh, and where she aligns on those issues in light of uh, the Modi government, in light of the New Yorker piece, in light of the uh, spying in Germany, in light of um, the disinformation, uh, fake news sites being propped up by uh, uh, India. You know, the, there's a lot of pressure right now on minority communities of Indian origin uh, and uh, something like a, a cabinet committee that's going to be kind of dictating where this government goes on issues of international affairs and global security. It'll be really interesting to kind of uh, see over time how this actually acts and also learn more about the positions of guys like Navdeep and Harjit Singh and, and Anila Nad. Uh, and where they stand on a lot of these issues that are important to minority communities. Up next, we have Balpreet Singh, who's going to be updating us on all the legal work that he does. So Balpreet Singh, this month, what are some of uh, the legal cases you've been working on? What are some of the updates you have for the community? Well, it's been a Kirpan kind of a month. I've been dealing with a lot of Kirpan issues, and these things just come, I guess, just in bunches. So I'll tell you one. It was uh, at Sir William Gage uh, Middle School in Peel in Brampton. Uh, we had a young man um, in grade six, I believe, who wears his kirpan. And he was told first to go to the office because someone was alarmed by seeing his kirpan. And then he was told uh, at the principal's office that he is actually not allowed to wear the kirpan during a phys ed class. Uh, so for several phys ed classes, he just uh, reluctantly took his kirpan off. But uh, finally, when things came to an end, like he was playing tennis or something, and then he said, why do I have to take my kirpan off now? Uh, his parents got in touch with me. I emailed the school, the superintendent. Uh, I emailed everyone at Peel uh, District School Board. And by 9.15 a.m. the next day, uh, the thing was resolved. But it's kind of sad that it actually occurred still because we worked on this uh, resource on six students for Peel District School Board and we're kind of looking into the situation. And the kind of thing that actually made it even more interesting was that his principal, who was involved in telling him to take his kirpan off, was from a Punjabi background. So, I mean, interesting. 
but it was resolved. So, I mean, we'll continue to monitor these sort of situations. That is really interesting of- and also important that WSO has put steps in place. Uh, you know all of the legal issues around it, but also, as you mentioned, you have done the work for the Peel Board. Um, you've helped create a module so folks are educated and hopefully they will be returning to those resources. Absolutely. And we'd resolved the situation a long time ago. Like physic class should not require someone to take the Kirpan off. You can swaddle it. You can make sure that it's restrained and it can't fly up. But there's no reason why in a normal phys ed class the Kirpan has to come off. So I, I used to box with rights. my Kirpan. I swim with my Kirpan. I box with my Kirpan. Nobody has ever been hurt by it. At most, it awkwardly stabs me. But uh, we know six from all walks of life who are active in a lot of different ways and it's also made to be something that works with your body so for anyone who's listening who has any hesitation around whether it can work in a gym class we have solved that for you gal katam you can definitely wear your kapan in gym class yep so a couple of others it's at factories we had uh the shopping channel uh tell a sick worker that he can't enter with his kapan or any metal for that matter because they're a metal-free zone, so no one can walk out with their merchandise. So we worked with them, and they've now introduced an accommodation policy for the Kirpan. Uh, and then there's another factory that introduced a new restriction on the Kirpan for their workers, saying no bigger than six centimeters. So looks like someone was, uh, you know, Googling Kirpan and found that six centimeter Kirpans are allowed on flights and decided this would be the new regulation for their factory. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you can't put an unreasonable restriction on the Kirpan uh, at a factory, if you have like seven and a half inch kirpans that are allowed in courthouses. So a six centimeter kirpan is a, it's not really a standard size for a kirpan, but it's the accommodation for all blades, not just kirpans on Canadian flights. Uh, so I don't want to see this thing growing and having workers uh, have to meet six centimeter regulations uh, and restrictions. So I'm working on that as well. Uh, one other one that I'll touch on briefly was, uh, there was a young man in a small town near Ottawa with a Dastat, and he was being bullied by his manager, who was actually also from India. And at one point, this manager uh, shook or tipped his Dastat as a part of the bullying. So he reached out. We made sure that Tim Hortons investigated uh, the entire thing and let people know that this is unacceptable. And that's all this uh, young man wanted us to do. So after an investigation, there were some reprimands, but... Um, the important part is that he's not being bullied anymore. So that's a, a sort of overview of some of this, the cases that I think are of note. And again, those things are, um, it's good for folks who are listening to know that um, there are things in place so nobody can touch your dasta, nobody can ask you to remove your karpan. And if you ever have any questions, you can reach out to someone on the WSO team and we will help give you the right information and help uh, guide you in that sense. So you've also been working on Bill 21 and the appeal. So for folks who are listening, Bill 21 is the law in Quebec um, that says that people who are serving in public roles who cover their head or have other overt symbols of faith are not allowed to. So that includes women in hijabs, Jewish men in kippahs, and uh, folks in the stars. And WSO has been part of the legal challenge to that. So what's been going on with the appeal and what are the updates? So there's two parts of this legal challenge. One is the actual legal challenge on its merits, and the other is the injunction. So the injunction is asking that the law not be operative, not be effective, until the legal challenge is completed. So the Quebec Superior Court rejected that. They said no injunction. 
And then the Quebec Court of Appeal, in a decision that came down on December the 12th, uh, reiterated that. They said that they would not grant the stay, they would not grant the injunction. And interestingly, the Chief Justice would have actually granted it. He said that there was irreparable harm happening for female teachers. And if there's no stay, then the public interest uh, would be harmed, that there's actual harm occurring to people that are losing their livelihood. But that wasn't the majority decision. So uh, now it's up to the CCLA and the NCCM to decide whether they want to appeal this further to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I personally feel that it, it's it's worth appealing. So I guess we'll see what they want to do. And I, I agree with that, Justice. It is, it's irreparable harm. And we have had our... Uh, one of our board members, Amrit Gaur, sharing her story, and she's had to move because of this. She's had to be away from her family. And you can find her story if you Google Amrit Gaur and Bill 21. She can speak for herself. But it's not a stretch or an exaggeration to say it's irreparable harm, specifically and disproportionately for women. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that if you have to leave your family, you have to move to a different province, that's affecting you. And it's not affecting anyone if this law is not operative. Like the government's not losing anything if this law is on hold. So I don't see the justification for it. So I think it should be appealed, but I guess we'll see. Uh, so the update on the legal challenge generally is that we're part of one legal challenge and there were two before. And I just heard that uh, there's a third one, additional one. So that's four legal challenges to this uh, to this bill. And those are all going to be heard together uh, beginning in October 2020. So uh, a long ways away, I guess, in a way, uh, but they'll all be heard in the fall of, two th of 2020. Um, so it's a long time. And then that's not going to be it, right? Uh, the decision's going to come maybe within the next three or four months after that. So early 2021. And then that'll be appealed to the Quebec uh, Court of Appeal by whatever side loses and then probably appealed one more time to the Supreme Court of Canada. So we're not looking at a resolution to this issue on a legal uh, level until probably 2022, uh, late 2022. Um, that's a long time. It's three years. So it's a long battle. One of the things that has come from this is the seeing a lot of interfaith work because it impacts Jewish folks, it impacts Muslims, it impacts six. Um, there's another interesting thing that's happened and a little bit unprecedented in seeing interfaith work. There's been a joint response to um, a ask that paramedics with beards wear masks. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the response has been with all of these faiths working together? Yeah, so a story broke uh, this week or last week that sick paramedics in Hamilton are being told that they can't uh, work on, they can't go out because of new equipment that doesn't work with beards. Uh, at the same time, it was also reported that Peel is accommodating their over 20 sick uh, workers who have beards uh, because the situation where they would need to wear this equipment is, is very rare. Um, what has happened is that uh, the WSO in a, uh, in partnership with CJA, which is the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, as well as the National Council of Canadian Muslims, the Baha'i Community of Canada, and the Mosaic Institute, wrote a joint letter to Ontario Minister of Health Christine Elliott, calling for an accommodation for sick paramedics who have beards, as well as other uh, paramedics who have religious beards. Uh, that's actually a partnership that we've never, uh, that I've never seen before, and it's uh, it shows actually uh, how well integrated we are with the other communities 
how strong our our partnerships are with the other communities. Uh, I'm hopeful that Christine Elliott will work quickly so that uh, the affected sick paramedics will be able to start their work again. WSO has a strong history of uh, doing work with other communities. I was actually really, I don't know why I found this funny, but also really happy to learn that uh, WSO had a history helping someone with a Scottish man get an accommodation with his kilt. And I learned that in our series, our social media series, because it's been 35 years since the World Sick Organization was started. And it's the 35 years and 35 days. So it's every day there's a new post. If you've been following, thank you for following. And if you haven't, uh, follow along now. And we get to see all of these really cool things that the World Sick Organization has done. And as a wrap up to our segment on legal updates, I was wondering if you could share three out of those 35, because we curated, curated all of the wonderful things that the WSO has done and shout outs to Gerpa and to Gyansing Sandhu and to yourself, to everyone who helped curate these moments. It doesn't cover everything, but it covers a lot of really cool things. My question was, what are three things in the series so far that have stood out to you about what the WSO has done? And then I'll share my top three. Okay, I'm going to cheat a bit. Uh, I'm going to pick all of the Gerpaan ones. Uh, like my involvement in human rights and the WSO started out with my Gerpaan battles. It was with the Via Rail and then courthouses. So all of the Gerpaan battles have been kind of dear to my heart, close to close to home. So the first case I took was the courthouses one. And the latest one that I think probably I'm most proud of is uh, is the one for airlines. Um, so that's my number one pick. My number two pick is the Quebec Soccer Federation. This was my uh, sort of introduction into working the media, working politics, and working the legal side. Uh, this was the Quebec Soccer Federation said that sick kids with patkas or any other head coverings couldn't play soccer. And this was an accommodation that was offered like across Canada, no issues whatsoever, but it was just Quebec, unfortunately being Quebec. Um, so we worked with first the Canadian Soccer Association to have Quebec kicked out of, their feder- of the association, suspended. And then we worked uh, to get FIFA to directly say that parkas are allowed. And that resulted in an international rule change. Um, so FIFA officially now allows Sikh players to wear parkas or keskis uh, expressly. Um, if I had to pick a third, uh, probably, I guess, the Afghan Sikh one. Uh, like I remember, and that's just because it's personal, right? I remember just sitting alone at Amritvela and getting this WhatsApp message from this funny uh, number with like plus nine two. Uh, and I had no idea what, what it was. And when I actually like talked to them, it was these Afghan Sikhs and this like outside backwards town saying that they're being like persecuted and they need immediate help. And of course that was how we started working with Mamit Puller more. I knew him from before, but it's, it's a great story and it's not over yet. So I want everyone to remember that uh, there are approximately a thousand six still left in Afghanistan that are calling out for help. And uh, there are 40 uh, Afghan Sikh families that are still in the queue wanting to come to Canada, even though they have uh, private sponsors already and the government still hasn't approved them. So this is something that we'll be working on in the new year. All right. So my top three, I'm going to start from the start. One of the posts is when WSO Canada was founded in December of 1984. Um, so if you can 
follow along with the visuals on Instagram, you'll know what I'm talking about, it's a black and white picture. And I was struck by how ordinary the resistance was. Um, knowing what trauma looked like in the diaspora and seeing it's just aunties in suits and uncles in their pent coat. And it's not something that sometimes we see these great visual representations of six. And sometimes you see that the resistance was just ordinary people who took from what they had, who raised their kids at the same time and their immigrant hustle was going at the same time. And they were able to start an organization like this. So if you ever feel overwhelmed at doing community organizing and activism, know that it's always looked this regular. The second one for me is uh, WSO successfully removes discrimi discriminatory secondary screening of the stars. So this is from April of 2015. Um, I think I, every Sikh in Canada has benefited from the activism of the World Sikh Organization, whether you know it or not. So this might be one that maybe you don't know why these shifts happened, but if you do at all, plug for WSO, feel positively impacted by the work that we do, please make sure you donate. So um, this was saying that everyone who traveled through an airport that was wearing a dastar um, would have to do a mandatory secondary screening and pat down. And the WSO wrote to the Minister of Transportation and began advocating. Um, and then that uh, secondary screening, you no longer have to do it. So if anyone has been through an airport with a dastar or traveled with someone through an airport with a dastar, you know how humiliating it can be and how anything that makes that process easier um, gives you confidence. Um, and then the third one is for personal reasons, um, the uh, public safety report being amended and personal because um, I was just personally angry and moved by that. So um, we've talked about it on the podcast before the last year. Um, the public safety report that came out, six and Khalistani extremism ended up being uh, cited as a terrorist threat with no actual evidence. And everyone organized and used all the democratic tools that we have, uh, town halls and writing to folks. And it was amended. And I think that was a huge win for the community. And it showed that while it was also cited as being a fringe influence that impacted Canada, it showed that we're Canadian just like everyone else. And we have access to the same tools for activism and advocacy. And we use them well. Hey, Sunny. Always a pleasure to chat. I trust you have been keeping out of trouble out there in the UK. But I, I really wanted to talk to you about two pieces of recent news that I believe you can provide interesting insight into considering your background and in working in Indian media, um, as well as spending time in India and, and covering uh, Modi from a pretty early stage. <laughs> The New Yorker piece, Blood and Soil in Narendra Modi's India, um, would really love to get your uh, reactions to that, uh, as well as um, how a mainstream outlet like The New Yorker spent some time really digging into Narendra Modi's RSS background and, and the role that plays in the BJP. And then secondly, I would love to get your take on um, the UK elections and the role BJP-driven organizations uh, played in interfering uh, on the ground uh, and considering how they tried to make the Kashmir issue uh, and the Labour Party stance uh, against India on the Kashmir issue uh, into an integral election um, uh, election uh, issue uh, in, in the South Asian community, but particularly in the Indian community. So... Starting with the New Yorker piece, you know, what was your first reaction when you were reading through that and what did you make of it? 
Hi, just going. Okay, so let me answer the question about the New Yorker piece, um, and I think it was important for several reasons. Firstly, to me, it was uh, really interesting that a mainstream uh, outlet in the Western world had focused specifically on what Modi had said in terms uh, of minorities, especially Muslims after 2002. And, you know, it's important because I was there in India in 2003. And since then, I have tracked this whole issue for a long time. And for most people, uh, when they're reporting on India, or they're talking about even Narendra Modi, they go over, they briefly mention the pogroms against Muslims in 2002 in Gujarat, and they sort of say, you know, there's controversy, but he was exonerated by the Supreme Court and other, um, you know, um, institutions. But what they don't point out is the specifics, which are that a lot of these institutions were politically motivated, politically set up. And furthermore, there is a long uh, history and a long litany of things that he had said about Muslims, which to me also echoed a lot of the stuff that the Congress had said about Sikhs after 1994. You know, stuff like, you know, well, of course, stuff like this is going to happen if that's how they act, you know, that kind of attitude. And so there's this uh, documentary called... Um, uh, something saffron, I can't remember now. Um, no, uh, it's by a guy called Rakesh Sharma, and he did this uh, documentary, uh, The Final Solution, I think it's called actually, and it's about um, Muslims in Gujarat, and um, and he videos Modi going to all these villages and talking about those rights quite openly in a very sort of dismissive manner, you know, like, well, Muslims, what do they expect, you know, uh, if, if they, you know, um, if they um, get too cocky, you know, this is what's going to happen to them. Those sort of ways of talking about minorities that I think a lot of Sikhs would understand and would sort of remember from 1984. And so the point is that this was the first time I had seen a mainstream outlet in the United States focus. I mean, not even the United States, even the UK bring up those quotes and point out that this guy has a long history of anti-Muslim rhetoric, which goes back, you know, over a decade. And that was a big thing, I think, you know, uh, for a mainstream outlet to do that. And secondly, the point is that it is, I think, also important that the Western media look at Narendra Modi in the context of his rise through the RSS, um, and the BJP, and their ideology, and what their views are, because a lot of the media just sort of sees them as Hindu nationalists, you know, and that's it. It sort of skates over the ideology behind it, their way of looking at the world, what motivates them, and and frankly, their attitudes towards minorities. And, and so for me, it was important. I, and I think it was a bit of a watershed article because not only so many people talked about it, but sort of gives other organizations the license to dig deeper, talk about these issues in a much more frank way uh, because they feel 
I think that they have felt in the past that they can't dredge up that stuff, you know, because it's like in the past. And now they have more license to do that. If there is one thing that has really stood out about this New Yorker piece is how compromised and morally bankrupt India media has become uh, in effectively sharing that story that that you just laid out for us about the state of uh, Hindu nationalism or, or the RSS and the BJP. You wrote for the Hindustan Times and you got to see how the Indian press works, uh, well, relatively better than um, the rest of us, at least. Does your uh, does your experience line up with what the New Yorker laid out um, in in their piece? Yeah, so I wrote for the Hindustan Times and I got a glimpse of how the Indian press works. Not necessarily, you know, a good overall glimpse. So I'm not going to say that I uh, fully understand the Indian media, um, you know, as an outsider. Uh, but also, I've been following Indian journalists for quite a while. I, you know, I I understand Indian politics. I have, um, you know, I've followed it for a long time. You know, I grew up in India um, until about 13 and then came to the UK. So I sort of know the politics much better than um, a lot of people. And the geography of the country, I've traveled around quite a lot. And um, so, you know, there's one thing that... I mean, I think it's wrong to generalize about Indian journalists in the same way that you would elsewhere, in that a lot of Indian journalists are, I think, really good and really trying to just do a good thing. But certainly... It is the case that in the last few years that the BJP has really, um, you know, strangled a lot of independent outlets or forced outlets who rely and government advertising is a big part of their revenue who rely on Indian advertising, uh, government advertising to push them in a particular direction. And I think that um, that is clearly forced um, the media to become uh, much more subservient to the BJP and, you know, listen to their agenda. And also the other problem is that it kind of feeds off itself. If the government sort of stokes up nationalist thinking and, you know, nationalist views and policies, and then other people sort of sort of get swept up with that. It's natural, I think, for uh, media outlets to say, well, we need to cater for those people and, and do really well out of it. And so... I don't, I don't think it's just the fact that the BJP forced the Indian media to go in a particular direction. I think that they created, have created this atmosphere which media outlets will naturally say, well, we need to cater for those people. And media outlets will naturally say, let's, um, you know, um, tap into that energy to uh, make money. And that's what they've done. And it, it's created this environment in which anyone who steps out of that line and who says something different is ostracized. Um, and I think that's a real problem, not just in India. It's kind of everywhere. It's sort of, you know, it's... Um, and in India, especially because you've got... Um, Violence against journalists is very common, um, and you know it's rated as one of the third worst country in the world for journalists. You know, worse than um, only Syria and Iraq are above it. 
um, and probably in Mexico as well. But the point is that um, it is pretty bad for journalists. And so the journalists, ordinary journalists, you know, feel much more uh, scared of speaking out because anyone can launch a legal action against them. You know, people are, um, you know, um, very vicious when it comes to nationalism. And they can easily sort of target journalists. Um, and in India, it's a problem. And so um, it has certainly led to a an environment in which the Indian media is um, become much more subservient to the BJP agenda. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point that I probably haven't given enough thought to uh, is the role that the atmosphere that the BJP has developed, which the Indian press is more than happy to work under uh, because it means they're, they're playing with a um, ideology which is popular, which they can tap into, which they can get the click-throughs through, which they can be a partner within um, in order to just continue to make themselves relevant in the gender population, which, which I think is an important point. And maybe this is a larger conversation we need to have on just the Indian press uh, and media. But kind of summing up, uh, summing up what the the impact of this New Yorker piece is, um, you know, what do you think is important for us to kind of walk away with and think about and and consider a little bit more deeply after reading um, Ron Ayub's story and uh, this New Yorker article. What should we walk away thinking about after reading this piece? I think the main thing to take away is that, you know, Modi is really dangerous for secularism. He really hates Muslims. He will also do the same thing against Sikhs or any other minorities if the opportunity is there or if it's required. I don't think that these people... um, have any doubt in their minds that it's Hindus first and that we need to create a nation just for Hindus and other minorities and other people need to bend to that um, aim and it's a real problem. You know, I've been writing about Modi and, and, and protesting against this guy since 2003 when he came to India, I think, 2004. And so um, watching his documentary, documentaries about him, reading his stuff um, has made me really worry about um, the direction that these guys are going in. And frankly, the events of the last few years in India, especially much more recently now with this bill, uh, where they're trying to um, cast out Muslims so that, that they are become refugees in their own country, uh, you know, it's, it's a continuation of their ideology. Uh, and they have been very good at hiding that ideology in a blanket of very uh, sort of, you know, uh, not polarizing, but sort of nice sounding statements. You know, we're only trying to help people, people, uh, refugees, Hindus and Sikhs in neighboring countries. Uh, And that gives cover to a lot of BJP enablers. Um, And um, the, yeah, that's it. Okay, from India, we're now going to go to the United Kingdom, which just had the general election. Uh, Boris Johnson won a convincing majority. And for us uh, sick Canadians out here watching the Twitter feeds of our friends, um, our folks out in, in the UK, 
we're just scratching our heads trying to make sense of this whole thing. Uh, and I, now I kind of feel, uh, understand how it feels for those out in the UK or the States when they have to follow uh, sick Canadian political Twitter uh, during the elections, uh, because it, uh, a lot of it doesn't make sense. You're not really sure why up is up and down is down. Um, if you could just quickly explain in like a minute what your first reaction is, just generally speaking, to this uh, UK election results and the convincing majority for the Tories. Um, I wasn't about the election. I was, uh, you know, sad that the Conservatives came in with a big majority, but not surprised, to be honest. Um, Labour ran an OK campaign, but the party is um, utterly clueless about, I think, how most people think sort of, you know, it's like the left lives in a bubble of its own. And on top of that, you know, they they just completely mishandled so many issues, including Brexit, the anti-Semitism crisis, uh, the economy, just like every single issue, they just mishandled it. So he's a terrible leader. So I'm not surprised that that happened. It was just um, more of a shock that so many people uh, switched over and voted Conservative. Uh, but then in hindsight, it's not really that surprising. Right, which is fair. And I think anyone who follows you on Twitter would... Would know that very clearly. You're probably not too happy with the results. But what I found very curious from watching out here and and following you and and the stories uh, that you were putting out was how active and open uh, the pro-BJP lobby was in in engaging in this election and trying to change the outcome. You know how that even happened and, and who were the people behind it. So the BJP interference story was funny um, and interesting um, and, you know, eye-opening, but also not surprising. Um, And I first spotted it when I saw um, the story in the Times of India. And I was like, what? You know, these people are actively saying that they are going to interfere and vote uh, and push for the Conservative Party. Um, And that, to me, was a clear sign of election interference. But also at the same time, um, I had seen one or two messages from other Hindus who had sent me uh, WhatsApp messages saying, look, this is what's going on within the community and that there are a lot of people organizing to support the Conservatives because of the anger over Kashmir. And I had seen um, a lot of chatter around these protests that had happened in London against um, the Indian High Commission. And the protests went uh, violent. There's no doubt about that. There were windows broken. People, um, the pro-Hindu side had, um, the pro-India side had um, stuff thrown at them. And the optics were bad. And to be honest, the, the, the Kashmiri and the Sikh groups who were there really went over the top. And they liked to do that to a certain extent. And it really just backfired because eventually they got banned from holding a demonstration there. But anyway, because of that the videos that went around, there was a lot of anger that was bubbling up. And as soon as this BJP story came out, I was like, wow, uh, firstly, I'm going to report on that because obviously they, um, this was interference. Um, I had seen some messages supporting that, including people from Delhi who were um, connected directly to the BJP, working for the BJP, who were saying, you know, I'm really pleased to see um, all these organizations come out and support the Conservatives. So I felt like I had to do a story, but really, to me, the bigger issue, the bigger story was that British Hindus themselves were very angry at the Labour Party. Um, And 
a lot of that was being whipped up by the BJP and their supporters. And so I wanted to eventually go towards that story. But this, to me, felt like a, a story worth start, starting with to sort of say that the BJP is really interfering in this election actively. And then to use that to say that the BJP was also interfering in this um, in the UK, not only through um, trying to elect people through over friend, overseas friends of the BJP, but also through propaganda, through media organizations, through WhatsApp messages, through speaking to organizations in based in Britain and saying, you know, go out there, we will support you or go out there, you know, um, um, and we will use the the strength of the Indian um, government to support you. So that was, to me, a jump-off point uh, to sort of get started on this story because obviously there was a lot of interest, uh, interest around Russian interference in the UK, and I felt like this was a good starting point. Um, and so there was a bit of a, a, a race to do the story because I had flagged it up to other people who were equally shocked. I flagged it up to other journalists who were equally shocked, and then I thought, hold on, um, I need to kind of get on this story quickly because if I don't do this story, someone else will, and they will set the narrative. So I then sort of um, got a few quotes, um, got spoke to some people, bolstered the story, got a very strong quote from Tandesi, uh, who had been targeted uh, by these people. Um, and the story went viral, and it sort of really set the tone for BJP interference uh, during this election. So the Indian government has never shied away from interfering in elections uh, and sick community politics before, you know, whether that's uh, the Congress or, or the BJP. Uh, like, this is not necessarily something new. But what was different about this time? You know, what was different about their tactics and how was it um, effective or was it effective, uh, uh, period? I think what was different about it was that, you know, the BJP is has a very strong um, and fanatical base in the UK and has been there for a long time. Even when Narendra Modi came in 2004 uh, to the UK, there were a lot of people, you know, he went to Wembley, he filled out a stadium. There were a lot of people who were actively supporting him. Um, and so this time round, it wasn't just the Indian government which was doing anything. It was his supporters in London who were actively taking cues from the Indian government and then going out there and doing their own stuff. And I really wanted to highlight that because, you know, this isn't just a story of a direct interference by the BJP, and I suspect in future, uh, in the future, they will try and shy away from having um, overseas friends of BJP or other sp specific organisations which are directly connected, shy away from getting them to say anything in public, and use their soft power through. Um, organizations in the UK who are very loyal to the BJP and get them to do stuff. Um, and for example, in this election, all the, uh, the Hindu temples and the Hindu organizations said that we're going to do a ban on Hindu, uh, sorry, Labour Party politicians. And that was carried out. You know, I spoke to senior communications people at the Labour Party who said our MPs 
you know, have been frozen out of this conversation. Our MPs have not even been allowed to go to the mandirs and say to the and say to people, "This is um, what our stance is." Um, and you know they were not even allowed to speak to them. They were just completely banned uh, and completely shut out of the conversation. So people felt like, well, the Labour Party clearly is not interested in speaking to us. So I'm going to vote Tory. And so there was an active, a really organised and strong active um, attempt by the BJP and its allies in Britain to force an election uh, in a particular direction. Um, Thank you again, Sonny, for taking the time to come out onto Ask Canadian Six, the podcast, and sharing your insight on uh, Narendra Modi's uh, rise in India, and as, as well as the role of the Indian press and in all of that, as well as the UK elections. Uh, and hopefully, uh, we uh, carve out more time next time to chat about this a little more deeply. And that's it for. This installment of Ask Canadian Six, the podcast. We uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're happy to be back. There's always a lot to talk about uh, in our community and what's going on in Canada and around the world uh, for uh, six, six in the diaspora. Uh, with that, we will see you next time. Wahiguru Jikhalsa. Wahiguru Jikhalsa.